The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code POLITICAL. And by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and have your postal carrier pick up the packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 17th, 2014, the Is Amazon Evil edition. I'm David Plotz in Washington, D.C. On this week's show, the Ebola crisis turns political. Politicians respond to a couple of U.S. Ebola cases with cynical, useless, and horrible ideas. Then the Democrats have lost the Senate. What will the 2015 Congress do? That's We're going to just posit that, John Dickerson. And then is Amazon a monopoly? And is it evil? And is it both? We will discuss that. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And then in Slate Plus, Mystery Meat, which is now Mystery Vegetable, we will tell you why you should stop complaining, eat your school lunch. We'll talk about the school lunch, the school lunch furor. John Dickerson, Slate's chief political correspondent, is here with me. Hello, John. Hi, David. And Emily Bazelon, who is, uh, I don't know what she's doing. She, I don't even know. She doesn't even know why she's not here. She's not here. She's somewhere else. But who cares? Because Annie Lowry is here in her stead. Annie Lowry. You have some awesome title at New York Magazine. What is it? <laughs> I'm contributing editor. Contributing. I should come up with something better, though. That's not. That sounds a little feeble for what you are. You're an anchor. You're a giant, a, a colossus of New York Magazine. Contributing yeah. editor. They, thank you. And yes, you don't edit. I'm, I'm, no, I don't edit. I don't edit. I just write. I'm Why are you not contributing emperor, writer? Empress of New York Magazine. Uh, and, and verily, it is impressive. Um, <laughs> well, any, and you, and you write primarily about economic and business issues. Is yes. that what's fair to say? Yeah. Good. Before we get to the topics, just a, a whole, there's a whole bunch of announcements today, but I'll just do a couple at the top and then a couple later. First of all, we have a November 12th live show in Chicago. It's going to be our annual Conundrums show. It's going to be at the Park West. You can get tickets at slate.com slash chai gabfest, C-H-I gabfest. We're going to have a special guest, Amy Dickinson of Ask Amy. It is going to be a fantastic show. And we're going to start collecting your conundrums. So the conundrums episode, we we try to delve into difficult moral or ethical or tactical or practical questions. Or so, stupid questions. Or stupid questions yeah. and just uh, engage with them. And we're collecting your, your ideas. So, for example, John Dickerson proposed, if you're going to be fluent – in a language for one week only, what language would it be? Is it ethical to espouse belief in public schools and send your children to private schools? Is that, that could be one we could talk about. If you have better ones, I'm sure you have better ideas. You can go to facebook.com slash GabFest and give them to us. Tweet them to us at, at SlateGabFest or email them to GabFest at Slate.com. That first suggestion came from a um, somebody who came to our show in San Francisco. Oh, the, so, the language one? The language one, yeah. Okay, we're going to do it. I have was, s- it, was it Robin who suggested that? Anyway, I can't remember who Do you have suggested. any conundrums for us, Annie? Not at the moment. I, I have only, you know, the usual sort of, like, duck-sized horse. Duck, we've done that, sure, 100 done. duck-sized yeah, horses. I got, I got or, nothing. <laughs> I'll think about it, though. Maybe at the end, duck. we'll we'll come back. Yeah. People need it. There the needs, someone needs to, duck, by someone the needs to con- come up with a different version of that. So anyway, November 12th in Chicago, slate.com slash Chai right. I can't remember what I believed. It's going to be a really great show, so get your tickets. Also, there's a, another super fest the week after that, November 17th in New York in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. You can get tickets for that at slate.com slash Superfest East. That's going to be with the Culture Gab Fest and hang up and listen. And one other quick announcement, which is last week we teased my Stephen Colbert interview uh, for my working podcast. So I'm interviewing a whole bunch of people about their work, how they do their work. We ran a, a little bit of my interview with Colbert, and we are starting that podcast today. You can look up uh, Working, David Plotz, Slate, somewhere in iTunes, or it's up on Slate. Uh, and it's going to be a series of a, about 17 interviews over, over eight weeks. And they're, they're pretty good. They're interesting. <laughs> they're not great. They're like not the best interviews anyone's ever done. <laughs> but if you want to know how people do their job, it's pretty interesting. So I commend it. There is a genuine Ebola crisis scorching through West Africa. The economies of Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Liberia are in terrible shape as the virus and fear of the virus grind economic activity to a halt and stop global trade. Without a major international public health intervention, there may be as many as 1.4 million cases of the disease in the next nine months. 
Meanwhile, there is a fake Ebola crisis in the United States. A second public health worker has now been diagnosed with the disease. Both the Americans who have contracted the disease recently have got it from the one Ebola patient who was admitted into the United States and since died. It has prompted mild panic. There are schools closed in Texas and somewhere else, I think Ohio today. So, Annie, we have these various proposals for U.S. response. Let's just start with the U.S. and the the response with the U.S. Closing borders, stopping flights from West Africa, quarantining people in Ebola czar. Does any of this make sense? So maybe maybe the Ebola czar makes sense in terms of marshalling resources. My understanding is that closing the borders is just not going to be effective against Ebola. And it's it's a crisis, but it's a crisis for West Africa. The United States has an amazing medical infrastructure for this. The likelihood that this is ever going to become an actual public health issue in the United States beyond the scope of a few isolated cases seems very small. But I mean, West Africa desperately needs resources that the United States has. It needs doctors. It needs medical equipment. It needs money, not just for this crisis, but for future crises, perhaps not even with Ebola. And this is the place where, you know, the political system is going to be, you know, it's going to be really hard to respond to, right? Because the best thing I think that the United States could do is just write a very large check and give the money to the WHO or whoever else it is. But I think that that is going to be really politically difficult. And instead, we're wasting a ton of money doing really stupid stuff like closing down schools for absolutely no, no there's no point there's really no point um or at least not you know as as the crisis is sort of currently construed john so their political angle is being played in american domestic politics by democrats who are who are fulminating against republicans for having proposed cuts to the cdc and generally opposing international health measures from republicans saying oh this is obama's weak leadership has allowed this virus to infiltrate the united states and he's not strong on the border is there any legitimate political play here? Is this completely cynical on both sides? Or is there virtue in any of these arguments? Well, let's start with the cynicism first. In listening to the, particularly the Senate debates, it's been very funny to hear Republican candidates say sentences that sometimes Pat Roberts in the Kansas debate did it really at its best, which was sentences that don't actually can retain the structure of an English sentence. They, go, they sort of go ISIS, Ebola, border. (laughs) They don't. And the idea is that these are bad things that can come into America and therefore we need to close the border. The the sloppiness of the sentences, and Tom Tillis has done this in um, North Carolina, where he said, and this is actually a direct quote because I have it in front of me and I didn't have the Roberts one. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got an Ebola outbreak. We have bad actors that can come across the border. We need to seal the border and secure it. And this is actually a nice example of basically what the larger Republican strategy has been for the last year and a half, which is to nationalize the election, take a kind of huge sense of woe about the direction of the country and fear about whatever it happens to be at the moment and attach that to Democratic candidates. And that's working. And it's been working and it's going to work more here. So that's the the crass part. is, Is using Ebola... Working or is I it ISIS working? Or I think it's, just it's the, the general, whole general the whole sense of Belt, Belt, Belt and Schmerz. It's right. There's there Belt is there is some German word for this, but <laughs> it's the Aufgang. It's the sense of anxiety, and then when you have the president and this feeling that the, that the federal response has been bad, and you have the CDC, which apparently told this nurse who had a fever who had treated the patient in Dallas, it was okay for her to fly to Cleveland, or yeah, it was Cleveland, that it was okay. You have gross government stupidity matching up with this sense of anxiety, and that's a perfect thing for Republicans. The bigger problem, though, and the, what Annie mentioned, which is is you've got a short-term version of the longer-term mistake, which is in the short term, there are all these bad suggestions about closing the border or shutting off flights that don't get at what maybe the better short-term uh, response would be, which is to push this uh, response to Africa deal with it there and sort of be smart about the fastest things you can do now. That mirrors the bigger problem, which is that nobody was, you know, in our general way of focusing on problems, nobody focuses on long-term problems in a smart way. And we've seen that here because we're always sort of responding to immediate crises and nobody's doing the kind of smart response that you need when the crisis hasn't hit but yet. I presume, and I haven't actually followed this very closely, but maybe you have any. I presume the Obama administration is is all about let's do a big international public health push. Can they do this without Congress supporting it? Is this something the president can be pushing? Yeah, I mean, the president can push it, but they need money. And that's the part that Congress is going to have to do. And again, I think it might be politically difficult, impossible. I, I don't 
think so. But yeah, really, really hard. You know, and I think that John's point about like looking at the broader infrastructure for there needing to be better public health infrastructure, given that that people do travel and diseases like this or avian flu or, you know, name whichever public health issue that that you want to, in all cases would be ameliorated by having better public health systems in these really poor countries, right? If you actually really wanted to get a handle on this, you, you would want to be pushing a lot of money to public health research, basic scientific research to the World Bank. But instead, you get this kind of like knee-jerk political response of shut down the borders and yell at Barack Obama. So what is the what is I know this case, but I want one of you to articulate. What is the case against fully isolating Liberia, Guinea and Sierra Leone? Why not do that? Well, I'll take the first bite of the case. The first thing before I get to that is I only mentioned the Republicans. The Project Action Fund was the Democratic response to Ebola, which basically set, used the panic to say this is all happening because Republicans cut the funding. And the, the funding cuts are more complicated than that. But you don't shut down the countries because then they atrophy and die. Then there's no help coming at all. They have no infrastructure. Their economies die, right? Their economies are already taking a huge hit. But then they get no actual help. And then the, the numbers of cases just balloon and blossom and you can't just like cordon that off without turning it into some post-apocalyptic you know danger zone so you're going to have to deal with it now or later and it'll be huger later if you just let it happen in Africa so do you think that that is a case that American politicians are willing to are they willing to hear that and to say you know what okay let's just give the two billion dollars or is it just such a lost cause because this election is too tense and and Republicans really just want to score points here well it's not gonna I don't think it's gonna happen before the election um, and what you the problem is you have people David Vitter other senators saying you know we're we're focusing too much on Africa and when voters hear that. Um, you're, you know, that's a sentiment that that a lot of people feel in general, which is we focus too much over there and not enough over here. To make the the longer case requires time, and nobody has the attention span for that. One thing I want to get to, and Annie knows the answer to this, that really intrigues me is the sort of freak out and fear factor. The, I guess it was the World Bank who said that the economic destruction created by SARS and H one flu was mostly from avoidance and fear and all the stuff people did not to catch things. We are really good at freaking ourselves out. And we've seen the economic effect of that with the market and everything else, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the economic impact in these countries is going to be extraordinarily terrible. And these were, it's worth noting, these were really poor countries to begin with. And that's part of the reason that they didn't manage to quash the outbreak at the beginning. Uh, You saw other middle income countries like Nigeria, they just shut this down really fast, right? They just have enough money and have a public health infrastructure that was just good enough to get on the other side of it. These countries didn't. They end up with a lot of sick people. Their economies are going to need a lot of help from like the World Bank and other institutions like that. But yeah, I mean, this is why you see, you know, to the extent that there's a reaction and the market is doing something. I doubt that Ebola has too much to do with it. But if there were a million people and there was a lot of concern about cases popping up in countries like Japan and in Europe and in the United States, I think that, yeah, you'd start to see people avoiding airports, right? You would start to see people taking all of these unnecessary, probably precautionary measures. And that's where you're going to get the big economic impact. What is the proper response to a terrifying disease. Let's say you, you, you know, the human, like yeah, our, the let's say you knew you were on a flight with, yeah. with that nurse. How do you think, what would you feel? Do you think what? you would be, well, go ahead. You're I mean, the, the good thing it seems is that the primary method of transmission mostly is people taking care of dead people's bodies, right? right. Like it's actually fairly hard to catch. I'm not, you know, I have my medical degree from house university or whatever right but my understanding is that it's terrible once you get it and and i think it's at this point right like a 70 percent fatality rate or something but that the the good thing about this to the extent that there's a good thing about this virus it's it's that it's relatively hard to catch you have to be sim- symptomatic right. to transmit it right i don't know that there's an answer to that question though probably a doctor would tell you to get a flu shot and wash your hands right, right? like that's what they tell more, you about everything as no the, no but i'm just i'm not talking about that obviously the, rationally we know you should get a flu shot and wash your hands you should, but i'm <laughs> saying this is a disease which which has an extraordinary power to instill fear in people. Right. And certainly in if you're in Sierra Leone and in Guinea, you, oh. you should feel fear all the time. But I'm just wondering, well, what is the way that we as rational actors can overcome that paranoia? I mean, the country, well, I the country you, has two cases of this, this disease right now and, and is in a, is in a national yeah. hysteria. Yeah, well, I think we have, to, <laughs> we have to do – I mean, you know, responsible people have to behave responsibly. So you saw Shepard Smith on, on uh, 
Fox News stopping sort of and saying, everybody calm down. Now, I mean, he could have talked to his own producers during the other 23 hours and 55 minutes. But, you know, the cable networks need to calm down. The broadcast networks need to calm down to inform. And, and, and some of them have. But, you know, sometimes even five stories saying you can't catch it unless somebody has the symptoms and you're treating them. In the cases that people have died or been infected, it's, they've been, you know, in this very tight, small circle that you're not likely to wander into. Even if they're doing 10 stories in a row like that, it then becomes incumbent upon the viewers to not take that as, oh, my God, I got to freak out. Because a lot of times what happens is people see 10 stories. And even if the stories say calm down, they think, oh, God, I got to freak out because they're telling me to calm down. So it's on the viewer as much also as it is on us in the media to kind of say, okay, what are they telling me? But then the problem is like CDC is telling you things. And then one of the problems here that's so powerful is that they – the people who should know didn't behave correctly in the case of this second nurse. And that's what makes people think, well, if the pros are not doing this right, then how can I take advantage from those same pros? And that makes it particularly difficult here. It's also, it's just Obamacare, I think, also. Um, <laughs> so the GapFest this week is sponsored by Stamps.com. You know the feeling you get when you can get things done with a click of your mouse. There is nothing more convenient than that. And now you can get your mailing and shipping done without ever leaving your desk, thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. Then you just hand your mail to the mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox, and you'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for this special offer. You'll get a no-risk trial and $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale that calculates exact postage and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST at stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. John Dickerson, pay attention here because the Senate is lost for Democrats. You're going to be allowed to dispute that possibility in a second. But the election is still weeks away. But it looks like a remote possibility that the Democrats will hold on to the seats they need to keep their majority. Independents may end up having... The balance if Larry Pressler sneaks away with the South Dakota Senate race. But the best bets have Democrats losing, what, Arkansas, Louisiana, West Virginia, Montana, Iowa, North Carolina, and... Well, that's not the best bets. I mean, there are nine sta- there are 10 states okay. in play. So there are 10 states in play. Three are usually considered gone, although South Dakota was one of the states that was considered gone. We'll, we'll know at the end of this week, beginning of early next week, whether the kind of panic in South Carolina, South Dakota, excuse me, will be fixed by the Republicans. Because there's a lot, Larry Presser, who's coming up in the polls, has no money. He has a lot of name ID, but no money. Rounds, the Republican there, was running a terrible campaign. Now a bunch of money's come in, and some people have come in to kind of straighten him out. The Democrat in the race is running third. It's unlikely that he's going to, like, race the top. You're getting really granular here. Well, no, because South Dakota is the best part. I mean, we've got – usually this race has been stuck in, like, this boring track for the last year and a half. And suddenly with 30 days left, it's gotten crazy. South Dakota's on the map. Kansas is on the map. But anyway, if you basically say those three are done, then you have seven states from which Republicans can get the remaining – or six states from which Republicans get the next remaining three they need to take control. And those are all pretty much up in the up in the air. Louisiana, North Carolina, Arkansas, Alaska, Iowa, and Colorado. Georgia is the only other thing we haven't mentioned where it would be a Republican loss of a seat. And there is some evidence Republicans say, like as of this afternoon, they're feeling a little bit more nervous about, about Georgia. But the most important thing before we get on to what will happen if the Republicans take over control of the Senate is that we probably won't know on November 4th because you have 10 races that are all pretty close and four of those races either have – in two of them, you have independents who haven't said who they'll caucus with. And then in two of them, you have runoff possibilities in Georgia and Louisiana. So Louisiana might be the real election. It might go to a runoff into December. And in Georgia, the runoff is in the 6th of January, which is three days after the new Congress is sworn in. So there's a lot of reason. And we haven't even counted at that point the chance that you might have a recount, which um, might happen if one of these states is super close. So there's a lot of reasons. It's a broker convention. Yeah, you're you're talking broker convention <laughs> now. No, no. This is actually They're a They're going to dump the vice president. This is much more of a possibility than a brokered convention. So, Annie, so the Republicans are going to win the Senate. Yes. What are they going to do once they have it? So they are going to have the House, obviously, and they will have the Senate for probably two years only. It looks like two years only. So they'll pass a bunch of stuff and Barack Obama will veto it and they will not be able to overcome his veto. 
So what what happens? I mean, my great fear is that the government is going to shut down a bunch of times because they're going to attach a ton of things to spending bills. And Barack Obama is going to object to those things like the repeal of Obamacare uh, or, you know, name any of 100 things that they could attach. And and so how anything is going to get done, it's it's very hard to see. What do you think are the things that they will? So what are the things that they will grandstand about that they'll force Obama to put a veto on? What are the things which which Obama may have to sign? Mm hmm. And what are the things will they not be able to pass because their own caucus will just crater around it? So I think it's going to be very interesting to see if they attach things like block granting Medicaid, right? Like, I think that that will be one of the first things that they probably attach along with the repeal of certain parts of Obamacare. The weird thing is that the ACA, I mean, I I, I actually don't know whether they have they, John, you might know, have they said that they're going to try to pass so another bill repeal, again. Do, uh, repeal, uh, yeah. repeal and replace they have they're said, still doing that well i thought that would that's so like 2000 you know 13. but it's actually well, it's, kind of tough because they could end up actually increasing the deficit a lot and it's very hard to take things away from people but yeah i think things like block granting medicaid they're going to keep on passing and at some point you know i think that barack obama would would be under extraordinary pressure obviously to veto that but if the government keeps shutting down you know what does come onto the table there i'm not so sure but some some amount of budget cuts, presumably cuts to programs like food stamps. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what else. The EPA. They'll go yeah. after the EPA. They'll go after Dodd-Frank. Mm-hmm. Um, Judicial nominations are obviously going to be a big thing for Barack Obama to get done. John, you're, so. you're always a believer that the parties that have to govern will govern. Make the case that they will actually govern in a way that so the stuff reason, will get done. The reason, I be- the reason I've believed that in the past, uh, although, you know, I used to believe that before, like, the last three years when, when everything fell apart. But uh, as Annie started saying out, the reason the Republicans might only have control of the Senate for two years is because the map in 2016 looks as bad for Republicans as 2014 looks for Democrats. So with Republicans up for reelection in states like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Wisconsin and Florida, there are going to be a number of Republicans who are going to have to run to pick up voters who are more in the middle than, say, this year. So they're in purple states or blue states. And if Hillary Clinton runs, there's going to be an electorate juiced with a lot of women voters Mm -hmm. who are already picking the D at the top of the ticket. So they're going to be more in a kind of what is the moderate middle-of-the-road voter thinking than they're going to be in thinking about the most conservative elements of their conference, except they're going to have to get over their own party's primaries. And right now, people at the National Republican Senatorial Committee are basically telling anybody who's up in 16, just prepare for a primary. You're going to have it. It's going to happen. So raise money now. So we're going to go through that whole drama again. Anyway, that puts a lot of cross pressures on the Republican leadership, because on the one hand, they got to get their guys over their primaries. But on the other hand, they got to give them something to say, hey, when we were in control, we did X, Y and Z. And that's really, really tricky. I think one thing they might try and do early and easy would be trade promotion authority, which is something the president wants. A lot of Republicans want it. Democrats don't want it. And the president has put that off until after this election, but he could maybe they could maybe do something there to show they can at least get something done. But after that, I think they have a bunch of big, complicated stuff. Block granting Medicare would become, excuse me, Medicaid would be a huge fight that everything could break down over. I mean, those budget fights, that's, you know, and Medicare changes in Medicare could also um, they, they might make a swipe at immigration. You know, they would try to be smart and put. Democrats on the defensive, but given their political pressures against them, it's going to be hard to craft that legislation. Annie, please tell me, please, please tell me they're going to be stupid enough to do something like to repeal a contraceptive mandate or to make abortion after 20 weeks illegal. Just please tell me they're going to do that. Are they going to be that dumb? I don't think so. It seems to me that that is going to alienate the single women voters that are often very decisive in elections and that Democrats have been making a very good play for in a way that would be very self-destructive. That's not to say that they wouldn't do it. It's funny because the things that I've gotten really worried about. So I think that the government is going to shut down. If, if I were when, a betting person. When's the, when will the next shutdown be? What, when are we due? Um, is it a debt ceiling one or it's a. Well, yeah, that's the other thing is like, I don't see how they're going to be able to pass any increase in the debt ceiling during these two years. I mean, they've, they've gotten it done with a gun against their head before. Right. But that could be very bad also. And it'll be interesting if the economy is kind of weaker. And right now it looks a little bit shaky. That could be that could be really, really, really bad. When is a debt ceiling? When is a shutdown? I think that the debt ceiling is sometime next year, right? And a government shutdown is hypothetically a couple months, right? Yeah, I think after in the lame duck, isn't it? And there will be internal fights over things like 
investigations, for example. So mm. let's say the Senate is in Republican hands. There will be a lot of people calling for a whole round of investigations and oversight in the administration. And on the one hand, if you're Mitch McConnell, you let those investigations go forward so that you can sort of do – and John Boehner's had horrible luck doing this in the House. But basically you try and buy off your more conservative members – and your more conservative constituents by saying, look, we're really going after them on this. So that then you can compromise on, I was going to say immigration, but you're not going to be able to compromise on immigration. So compromise on the budget or something else, taxes. Also, the budget, taxes, healthcare reform are huge, complicated things that nobody has shown any aptitude. And we should mention the Democrats are going to have absolutely no incentive to cooperate because of that map I talked about. And because for them, it's very easy to just say, you know, nothing got done because of these obstructionist Republicans or these extremist Republicans who didn't want to work with the president. And they can take that to 2016 and they'll feel pretty solid in doing that. And what's the capacity of the Democrats? Assume they're, you know, a 49 seat, 48 seat minority. What is their capacity to slow and delay now in the post-filibuster area? Is it still, is it still significant? It's, or it's still really? significant. What's interesting is whether the, Mitch McConnell makes good on his promise to change the rules regarding filibusters on nominations, which he said was an, as an, which he said was an abomination when Democrats changed the threshold down to 50. So will he change it now that they're in the majority? He said he will. We'll see. What would be interesting, though, is if they're at 49 to watch where people like Angus King go and where um, Joe Manchin goes, the Democratic senator from that West dude, Virginia. That dude, he will become a Republican in a second. Yeah, he he's the Richard Shelby of this cycle. Is, yeah, that dude is completely um, cynical. There's so no or, or he'll hang and he'll join with like Mark Warner and maybe Michael Bennett and – uh, who else would we put in that category of sort of quasi-centrist Democrats who could try and find a new kind of power for themselves by aligning with the version of the same on the Republican side, the Lamar Alexanders and Bob Corkers, and try to create some you know middle way. And because Mitch McConnell would always be thinking about his 2016 candidates, those guys in a middle way might have some kind of power they wouldn't otherwise have had. So, I mean, that's a little yeah. bit wishful so, thinking. To add but. to your list of stuff that they might get done, too, maybe maybe this is just wishful thinking on my part. They're actually not too far apart on corporate tax reform. They could do that if they wanted. And there, I think it's just a matter of whether the incentive is there for Democrats to kind of play along. Mm-hmm. Right. So Very sexy topic. And what to do with the money they would get back. Whether right. they would have to... Whether it would finance new spending. Like, even Rand Paul has an infrastructure swap where he basically says... Fix corporate tax rates and then we'll let – or no, is that the White House that has that? That's the White House that has that. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, no, there's no way Rand Paul believes that. No, Rand Paul is with I them on – I just want to build highways. Yeah. yeah. No, Rand Paul Government. is with them on the, on the tax piece that you just mentioned. Yeah. But it's the White House that wants yeah. the swap one for mm-hmm. one and they may, not, they may not go for that. But enough of the might that you could maybe get a group together. Annie, back in 2006 when President Bush got – trounced in this, the midterms of his second term. He, it was a thumping. It was a famously talked about it, it was a thumping. So when you look at the Obama people or talk to the Obama people, do they have that same kind of concussed, glassy-eyed look that the Bush people had in those last few years of their term? Are the Obama people as sort of demoralized and defeated or do you sense that there's appetite to engage on all this stuff? You know, I, I get the sense that they feel like every time they have tried to be good faith actors and negotiate with Republicans, they've just ended up looking stupid. I think that they think that it is basically a lost cause on a lot of these issues. You know, maybe on something like TPA or corporate tax reform, you'd start to see them, you know, getting out. And I do think that, that some folks, I think Jack Lew has a very good relationship with the Republicans in Congress, actually. But when I talk to Obama folks, you get the sense that they're just like, they're like, done. They're like ready to get out of there. They have like senioritis. And I think you actually see it in President Obama himself. Like the bear is loose is I think the fa- my favorite thing that's ever come out of his, his mouth. He describes himself as a goddamn caged circus bear. <laughs> the president describes himself that way. And he keeps on running off to like hang out with celebrities and have like long boozy dinners. I really get the sense that they're kind of like, well, we did what we wanted to do. And, and now we're never going to do anything again. And you know, what's different than the Bush analogy is that there's a chance that um, this week notwithstanding that the economy might continue to kind of get a little bit better and a little bit better whereas with bush it was going in the wrong direction and he was dealing with economic chaos at the end of his two year his final last two years whereas if things get a little bit better in the economy you could imagine the president doing what he tried to do last week or two weeks ago which is kind of start to take 
quasi-victory laps. I mean, he may not succeed in doing that. He certainly couldn't now. Polls show that people trust the Republicans over the Democrats on the economy by 13 points, and that may be growing. But he would at least have something that he could kind of talk about that would that would presumably, if the economy keeps improving, would presumably be reaffirmed every month when you got the jobs reports. Uh, whereas Bush was like having to take incoming on TARP and all this other stuff. So he was beleaguered by the war and getting killed on the economy. So mm-hmm. that would be make it a little bit different for the last two years. Yeah. And it's also, it'll be interesting, especially, you know, when Hillary formally announces that she's running, which... You know, I, th- I think she probably is. You know, he's going to have to r- maintain a low profile for, you know, folks who are running in 2016. He's not going to be able to be out there and doing big stuff. And, you know, he's going to have to allow that distance. That's such a great point, because in the you look in the Senate races right now, when the president said in that economic speech, when he said, you know, make no mistake, these policies are on the ballot. What he meant was the policies he just articulated, but they, Republicans, wisely took that mm-hmm. soundbite and was like, see, we've been saying he's on the ballot the whole time, and we were right. And that was a single sentence in a single speech, and it has they've used it to good effect politically. All the Democrats in all the races just, like, smashed their head against the wall when they heard the president say that. And that will be – that peril will be there for Hillary Clinton because her constant – the Republicans – after succeeding in this cycle, p- painting all Democratic opponents as, you know, tied to Obama, they're just going to do that with Clinton or whoever the nominee is. And so there will be this daily thing about what did the, you know, if the president had cornflakes, it's going to ha- say something about the nominee. And so that sense of imprisonment will get like 10 times worse because, of course, his legacy depends on electing another Democrat. Because even if he doesn't like the new Democrat, that new Democrat is not going to seek to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which the Republican is at least going to have to say they're going to do, even though they might not when they came in office. Right. GabFest is also brought to you this week by Harry's, the great shaving company. Did you know that Movember is coming up, John Dickerson? Yeah, I've forgotten what's are you, the... It's the. Are you it, planning it, to grow a handlebar mustache in Movember? It's the, it's the to raise awareness for prostate cancer, yeah, right? Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Harry's is the official razor partner of Movember and will be there for you in the entire Harry month. I don't month. think I can get away, from, get away with a mustache. Really? For, I, can't, I can't do the middle period. Huh. Are your, is you, your man you going to grow a mustache? You are not Annie? joining the fight against cancer, John? <laughs> I, I am you joining... You love cancer? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I heard come out yeah, of that's right. Is that's right. going to grow a mustache? Um, <laughs> Has he ever done that? He's, he's, he's cut in a mustache after kind of growing a beard. Uh-huh. He does not have like the sort of luscious beard that you have. It's like a little bit thinner. And he looks so pervy and awful with, with a mustache. It's yeah. really not I, a I did look. that once with... Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> my... Uh, I did, I did I I did the same thing and literally my daughter went running from the room when she saw me with like I think I had like a like a barista mustache yeah. uh-huh. you know that was a little bit sort of I somewhere between 13 I want you to go like 13. the full Hall Notes thing you know yeah. He could right. he is yeah. very Hall Notes <laughs> All right but Both let's get back notes. on message here whether or not you grow your mustache with Harry's you can get an amazing shave and do good by supporting Movember's quest to fund research on important men's health issues there's a limited edition Movember Truman handle, three-blade cartridges, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover. $5 from each set is donated to the Movember Foundation. You can give back and shave well. Harry's, as you know, is a you can order amazing shaving stuff over the internet. I use a Harry's razor for trimming this, this luscious beard of mine and my mustache. It's great. They bought a blade factory in Germany, which crafts some of the world's highest quality blades for more than a century. And their starter shave kit starts at just $15, which includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's Shave Cream or their new foaming shave gel. I use their shave cream, but I probably would use their gel if I had it. I don't have their gel. So you can go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in our code GABFEST with your first purchase. That's harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter coupon code GABFEST at checkout for $5 off and change the way you shave forever. Amazon, is it evil? Is it a monopoly? The showdown between Amazon and Hachette Publishing over ebook pricing and Amazon's attempts to extract better deal terms from Hachette continues with Hachette's books, what, getting sort of de-emphasized in Amazon. You can't get them shipped. You can't pre-order them. And now there are writers, many, many writers, who are still campaigning to get Amazon to behave itself. In a New Republic essay, Frank Four called Amazon a monopoly, though one that benefits consumers. But he says it's significantly damaged other businesses in a dangerous way and needs to be reined in. Our very own Annie Lowry retorted in New York Magazine. What was your retort, Annie? So 
What's Prince? his argument, first of all, and what 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 do you how did you take it apart? So his his argument is that monopolies are acting kind of different in the internet era. So Google did not corner the search market and then start raising prices, right? Google searches are still free. But nevertheless, we have monopolies in the internet era, and Amazon is acting particularly badly. So he kind of argues that Amazon has, you can see the, the ill effects by looking at the way that Amazon cornered the books market where it now comprises, I think it's like something like 40% of all book sales, including All new book sales, sales are Amazon and six, 67% 60%. of e-books. And it's proceeded to act really, really badly, not necessarily for consumers, but really badly for a lot of businesses. And Hachette is just one of them. So if you look more broadly, the company needs to be reined in. There needs to be some regulatory uh, pressure on it. And we need to think about these monopolies and think about how our legal system will respond to these monopolies, is his argument. So- I think that, that Amazon is, a, is close enough to a monopoly in the books market and has obviously had some, some pretty bad effects there. I think it's a really bad actor. Wait, let's fight that out. What are its bad effects? I mean, I think that what it's doing to Hachette is bad for consumers, right? It is actually bad for consumers. Hachette has no recourse to get its books out to other people because Amazon is such a big channel, right? And especially if Barnes & Noble goes down, it's going to be very, very difficult, actually, for Hachette to make sure that its books are getting out there. I, I don't disagree that Hachette is having a problem getting yeah. its books out there. Why is that a problem? Like, who can, there are The books are available. You can well, get right. the books. Are writers still being paid for their books? Right. Well, yeah. they won't be paid as Consumer, much if, they're, if books are selling for five Well, but maybe, they, you know, you've... I don't well, see why publishers, this intermediary between the book buyer and the author, why they're so valuable to the world that we need to preserve them. Well, and for the same them. reason that magazines are a good medium between the blogger and readers, that publishers provide editing, they provide like a sense of mix in the. Uh, in Much the, less than a, ma- a magazine reorders the world. A magazine takes a whole bunch of different things, packages it in a new way, reconceives it. A book is fundamentally the work of a single person conveyed in the way in their vision and brought to a reader. It isn't a magazine it constructs right. this whole universe right. in a, de- a different way. And I, I agree that what's weird is that, you know, Amazon taking over this market has coincided with media going through a tremendous transition. I agree with you that I think that the role that publishers play has obviously become less and less important as the internet has become bigger and bigger. But, you know, going back to Frank's argument, where I, where I took issue is, like, Amazon is not a monopoly in online retail. It is absolutely not anywhere close to – it's a very, very, very small portion of overall retail, of which bricks-and-mortar retail is the much bigger part than e-retail, even if e-retail is growing. So maybe Amazon is a monopsony buyer of some products, but it's just not a monopoly. Like, I just, I don't, I don't actually get that part of his argument. And it's funny, if you read the piece, there's not that many numbers in it because the numbers don't support the case that Amazon is a monopoly. Well, especially on the consumer side. The, yeah. And that's why they're opening up a bricks and mortar store themselves right. is to compete with Walmart and huge, massive produce, uh, non-book producers of everything else. It was basically, it felt like it was grafting the books piece of it onto everything else Amazon does. So at what point does bullying of your competitors and and your suppliers become anti-competitive? Because certainly Amazon is not the only. Amazon pushes down its suppliers. It forces its suppliers to supply at lower prices. Or in the case of Hachette, I mean, that's effectively what they're doing. They're saying Mm -hmm. you're going to supply these books to us at a lower and get less money from it. Mm -hmm. At what point is that anti-competitive? Because this is what Walmart does. It's what every major retailer attempts to do. And Mm -hmm. the bigger ones are successful. Smaller ones aren't because they just don't have pricing power. They don't have Mm -hmm. the power. So when is it something that the government needs to stop. So again, I I think that the kind of narrow case, and I'm not an antitrust expert, but I think you can make a narrow case that Amazon has gotten there for books. I don't think that it's gotten there for any other product. As a general point, I think that that it's what companies do. They try to force their competitors out of business. That's like what they exist to do, right? So I don't see the case for the government stepping in. And in fact, retail is, is such a good sector because it is so competitive. And that's part of the reason that it's so good for consumers, right? Is because you have the Walmarts of the world. Walmart would love nothing more than to crush Amazon. And they're actually kind of big enough that they sort of can. They put tremendous competitive pressure on it. And, and so as long as there's that competitive market, I really don't see the need for anybody to step in. And now Google's trying to do the same thing to Yeah, Amazon. absolutely. And they have, I mean, they're sitting on a whole lot of money. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Who right. is Amazon? So I think 
people like me who shop, you know, who do a shocking percentage of their actual shopping on Amazon think, oh, Amazon, Amazon rules everything. But is it the case that Amazon is in better shape now than it was 10 years ago? Or is it truly in danger from Google and Walmart and Target? And I mean, its market share is increasing. But I think that Amazon itself thinks that strategically where it's, it's going to grow is in things like web hosting services and things like uh, same-day delivery, where it's going to have a lot of competition and it doesn't have that same infrastructure built up. So like Google is getting really involved in same-day delivery. Google obviously competes pretty hard on the web hosting and all that stuff too. And on the pure retail part, it faces a lot of competition from like the Walmarts and the Targets of the world that would like to be able to do what Amazon does. You know, actually, when I was writing the article, I went and I looked at what was in my Amazon basket because I am absolutely an Amazon user and then just went and put the same stuff in a Walmart basket. Mm. They get it to you almost as fast. You know, you do actually have a lot of optionality. And I think it's just past dependence that I use Amazon. Um, Also, I mean, also status, like it's a higher status product. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's, right. They're going after slightly different sectors of the American public. Although, right? and what, what Amazon would say, and they would be right about this, is that that can change instantaneously. Yep. I yep. mean, if you get a good, so for example, the app on the iPhone, so high, iPhone high status, you know, product that allows you to scan barcode for Amazon. Like you get habituated to that and you stick with Amazon that allows you to scan. So you're holding a thing in your hand and you don't want to actually type it Does that it exist? In. Do you have that? Yeah. Product? So you just scan the thing in your hand and then you've reordered it. Now, let's say Walmart. Can you do it at some other store? I guess, yeah, sure, yeah, you could. It's just the barcode, right? It's just the barcode. Wow, so, I never I didn't So know imagine that. that Walmart comes up with that functionality. You would switch apps and buy, order right. your stuff through that instant, you know, in a second because you have no allegiance to Amazon and the app. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is employers, the, where it would, where government would potentially have a role or where you could see a real downside, employees, I mean is what has nominally or marginally or a tiny bit happened with Walmart, which is that when they lower prices for consumers and they force their suppliers to every year provide lower and lower cost and higher value goods and then don't pass any of that on in wages, that you start to have a problem there. Now, either government steps in or you have these public shaming campaigns, and that would be a place where you might think that, you know, okay, they're in business to squeeze their suppliers, but they shouldn't be paying such low wages. Well, it's, it is kind of odd, and I think it reflects the blind spot of the American intelligentsia, which is that in, Amazon has been shamed a lot. There's been relatively little shaming of – I mean, at Walmart has been shamed a lot. There's been relatively little shaming of Amazon, even though I presume mm-hmm. the practices are not radically different, that the working conditions are not radically different, and that suppliers – and Amazon suppliers – employees are working just as hard as the Walmart suppliers at just low wages. Mm -hmm. But because people, I think, want people in the media elite and media in our class want Amazon to succeed, basically. They don't, they like Amazon. They mm-hmm. don't really, they think Walmart is trashy. Yeah, right. I mean, this is this is a place where I think that there's a clear case that higher minimum wages and better labor protections and ensuring that Amazon's workers, all of whom work uh, for, you know, affiliated companies, right, they never work for Amazon itself, were, you know, ensuring that they were allowed to unionize, that this is this is the place where, where a legal response or a legislative response would be necessary. And I'm, I'm hugely supportive of, right? If you had a $12 minimum wage or something like that, a $10 minimum wage, yeah, Amazon would have, it doesn't actually make anything in profits right now, right? But it would it would be forced to pass, you know, some price increases per mon probably in some cases. And, you know. One, one last question about this, going back to the publishing, which is what kicked this off. Is publishing writing, is the production of a book, whether ebook or actual book, intrinsically different than the production of diapers and the production and sale of diapers. And thus, should should the relationship of publisher and writer be protected in the way, and publisher, writer, and, and consumer of book be protected from the market in a way that nobody particularly cares about diapers being protected? I think that media is different, right? Because hypothetically, you can create endless copies. It does cost you something to produce a pallet of diapers, right? You do have to physically move them around. And, you know, I, I think that the disintermediation in some ways, I, a lot of a lot of folks who publish their own books and put them up on Amazon have said that that's been great, right? For self-publishing. So I think that there's probably upsides and downsides. But no, I don't think that there's anything intrinsically different about books and about media. And, you know, obviously that that industry is is subject to the same pressures that, you know, Slate and musicians and everybody else facing this kind of digital transition is facing. All right. 
what is your cocktail chatter, John Dickerson? My cocktail chatter is about <laughs> the fabulous debate between Rick Scott, the governor of Florida, and Charlie Crist, the former governor of Florida. It happened on uh, Wednesday night of this week, and the first – so that opens up with the debate, and there's nobody on the stage, and the um, – the moderator of the debate had to explain that there was nobody on the stage because, as the moderator said, the rules of the debate that I was shown by the Scott campaign say that there should be no fan. Somehow, there is a fan here. There was a fan behind the lectern of Charlie Crist, the challenger in this case. And that was against the rules that they'd agreed upon beforehand. And so Rick Scott, the sitting governor, refused to come out. Charlie Crist then came out on stage and stood by himself for eight minutes. This went on before Governor Scott decided to take the stage. And Did he mention the fan? Uh, it was mentioned briefly in the actual proper debate, which then descended into a, just a festival of acrimony. And um, it was clear why they needed some kind of cooling device because... Uh, <laughs> Neither man was a fan of the other. But um, the point of all of this is not just that this was one of the great moments in debates, this kind of total foolishness and and, um, clownishness, but that this goes back all the way back as all things related to debates go back to the first Kennedy-Nixon debates in 1960 because in the first debate in 1960, as we all know, Nixon had a knee injury that gave him a temperature of 102 He came into the debate looking like hell, taking antibiotics, and they offered Kennedy makeup. Kennedy, who had been out in the sun, said no. Nixon, because he didn't want to look like a a patsy, said no. Although he sent his guy down the street to get some lazy shave because Nixon had that five o'clock shadow that he tried to cover. It didn't work. If you watch the footage of the debate, Nixon's he's got this little reservoir of sweat on his chin, on his upper lip. And in the control room, the Kennedy guy who was in Don Hewitt, who was producing the debates ear had been before the debate saying, you know, you got to focus on Kennedy, show Kennedy, you got to keep the camera on him. As the debate started going on, he started looking at Nixon melting. He was like, no, no, put it on Nixon, put it on Nixon. And then the Nixon guy is like, no, no, put it on Kennedy. So the first debate ends and everybody agrees. And this is, of course, all become lore and myth. And But anyway, I'll just tell it the way the lore goes. But everybody agrees that those who watched the debate thought Nixon did poorly. And that uh, Kennedy had done so well. So we get to the second debate, which happens in Washington at the NBC studios. Kennedy walks in and it's 62 degrees in the studio because the story goes the Nixon guys had turned the air conditioning down for Nixon. So a Kennedy uh, staffer runs down and there's a guy guarding the air conditioner so that they won't mess with it. But ultimately they do get him away and raise the temperature. Then in the third debate, which happened with Nixon in California and Kennedy in New York, Kennedy's room temperature was 72 degrees in his little pod, and Nixon's was 54 degrees. So this whole thing about you don't want to sweat in a debate or you'll look bad is why Charlie Crist was clinging to his fan, which Molly Ball has a great piece in The Atlantic about Charlie Crist and his his lifelong association with his fan and its role in his life uh, because I guess he's a little sweaty and he doesn't want to end up like Nixon. That's fantastic. What is your fan, Annie Lowry? So I I have less of a yarn and more of a suggestion, which is that GabFest listeners go and search on Twitter and on Instagram and if you can on Facebook for DIY Ebola. And what you will come up with is people making their own hazmat suits. And it is delightful. A photograph of somebody in a DIY hazmat suit sitting in the airport went viral this week. And there's a bunch of photos of people like tying plastic bags to themselves. It all appears to be very, very... uh, I can't imagine that this actually prevents the spread of disease. Going back to our earlier conversation, maybe this is like stimulus, right? Like sale of Ziploc bags just go through the roof. And and, and, and this is all in earnest. They're actually trying to like protect themselves? It's both people in earnest and then people having a laugh, like tying, you know, like target bags to their legs or whatever. Because remember the duct tape and during the panic of after 9-11? Oh, yeah. Duct yeah, they were duct taping things. And uh, what was it? Duct tape and... Plastic sheeting. Pl- plastic sheeting, yeah, yeah, I guess. I had some. <laughs> yeah, do you? Yeah. yeah. You were in deep, huh? Oh, man. <laughs> I had some dried fruit, too. too. <laughs> and some water I jugs. A couple, a couple of pallets of diapers, huh? <laughs> yeah. I will be wearing this. That's a good one. DIY Ebola. So I'm going to use my chatter to make my big announcement about what I'm doing next. Because I want... I need GabFest listeners' help. So as many of you know, I... Stepped down as editor of Slate a few months ago, and I've been kind of sweat lodging. 
and and uh, channeling my my spirit ancestors to find out what I should do next. And I have come upon what I'm going to do next, which is that I'm going to be the CEO of a great digital media company called Atlas Obscura, which Slate readers may know because we have a partnership, Atlas Obscura. We, the we in that sentence is interesting. It's both we. We have a partner with us. Slate and Atlas Obscura <laughs> have a partnership to share content. Atlas Obscura is a, is a website devoted to discovery. It's all about the unusual and magical places in the world and readers can go to these places and, and upload information about it and share it with others. What we're going to do is we're going to take this incredible thing that exists, which already has almost a million readers, and we're going to turn it into what National Geographic was for our parents and grandparents, Atlas Obscura can be for our our own selves and our children. I'm really excited about it. We're going out to raise money, so we need to find some great investors who want to... It's going to be a great opportunity. It's going to be really fun. And we're going to hire editors and product people and developers and designers and writers. So if you're interested... Let me know. I'm at uh, davidplotz at gmail.com. And come along. It's going to be amazing. Or you can tweet at me, at davidplotz. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's really cool. It's yeah. a great site. Yeah. It's a great operation. And it's going to be even, it's going to be even better. It's going to be even better in the future. So I can't, I can't wait to do it. Let's do the credits. Actually, one other, there's one other announcement for the credits. <laughs> they, uh, there's another new Slate podcast, which is Dahlia Lithwick, who is Slate's tremendous Supreme Court reporter, has a new podcast called Amicus. It's a weekly show about the Supreme Court and other juicy legal topics. And it includes audio of the court's own arguments. Court own, buries its audio by releasing it on Friday night, but we're going to have that audio. So you can find it by searching on Amicus in your favorite podcast app or going to slate.com slash podcasts. Dahlia is a national treasure, so it's amazing that she finally has a podcast. That's going to be great. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our intern is Max Tawney. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. Put in your conundrum there. Give us a conundrum. Or no, not there, but go, go to that page. Our Facebook page is where you can put in a conundrum. Facebook.com slash gabfest. Or you can tweet us, tweet at us at Slate Gabfest and send us a conundrum that way or email us a conundrum at gabfestatslate.com. There's so many damn places to give a conundrum, it's going to be a conundrum. A conundrum, which, would, which is the best place to give it. That's right. You can subscribe to Gabfest on iTunes, leave a comment and rating while you're there. That really helps us and search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. For Annie Lowry and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll be back with you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.